Good evening again. Um, great to see you all and good to be here with you. Uh, it is, as we just keep saying, wonderful to be back this way. So uh, we're very thankful and um, I'm delighted, uh, particularly that on Wednesdays at lunchtime, uh, this room is again going to be a class uh, with Mike teaching um, and Annabelle uh, serving lunch and uh, Sakura, and it's just good stuff. Um, I, I do want to say thank you to the staff of this place. Whew. Driving in here with my wife, boy, sorry, I'm, I'm retiring this year, so I, I can burst into tears at, you know, at any instant. Um, but I was driving in with April tonight and just commenting to her on how blessed I am and how blessed this place is to have the staff who do what you all do. I'm not even going to try to identify each of you by name, but thank you uh, to all of you. Um, you are a wonderful bunch, and I am blessed to be associated with you. One of the things that's nice about this place is that there's a genuine academic freedom here, um, and it even lets us pray when we start things like this. So standing in the need of prayer myself, I do just want to do that as we uh, launch into this time. Father, I am thankful uh, that we can just look to you, that I can look to you, that in my weakness um, uh, we can trust you. And I do ask that you would reward these friends um, according to your grace and goodness. Um, and that you would work past the limitations that I bring to this little task. Um, we thank you for this place. We thank you for the ways you have cultivated it and made it um, something that we believe you care about. And so uh, we do as well. We ask that the work we do would be your work, that the work you do would be our work, um, and that here again uh, you would be gracious and good to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I do have a handout, so let me go ahead and uh, send this. You can send it around there and, go back that way and try to get it on back. Um, I don't know what you thought you were coming into this room for. If you thought you were coming in for a 12-minute um, devotional of some sort, you need to adjust. Um, I'm going to make you work far harder than that. And in fact, I um, want to spend probably 35 or 40 minutes of your time right now uh, going ahead and trying to say a few things that I hope will be helpful. Um, but uh, make the adjustment and we'll uh, hopefully find benefit in that little bit of a handout as well. Some of you know that the question, what frames what, is a question that I have often asked my students over the years. In, trying to, in asking it, I'm trying to get them and myself to think more deliberately and more carefully about the background ideas that shape or frame our thinking and our behavior. For several reasons, this little question is not an easy one to answer. For one thing, there's always more than one answer to the question. No matter what answer you give to the what frames what question, there are always other narratives in place as well. And so, Whatever I say tonight, please understand it is incomplete. It is only one narrative of many that are, are important in your own lives. The other reason the question is difficult is that often the ideas that do the most important work in framing how we think and live are not obvious to us and in fact can be quite hidden to us. We may think that we have a set of convictions, a philosophy, a set of values, or a creed that we are living by and that frames our lives, but often those creeds and philosophies and sets of values are in turn framed by some larger set of ideas. 
So it's good for us to spend time this way and together thinking together in order to try to suss out again what are the ideas that are doing this kind of framing for us. This evening what I want to do is try to try to draw our attention to the ways that our modern story continues to frame the ways that we think and live. I don't see our culture today so much as a postmodern culture as I do see it as a fully modern culture. We live at what I often refer to as the end of modernity, not in the sense that modernity is over, but in the sense that we now live at the logical end to which our modern story has led. We can only scratch the surface this evening, but I trust these few thoughts will at least be helpful to you and to all of us together in thinking about how our late modern setting frames the ways we live. Let me suggest four themes that strike me as central characteristics of the modern, and you can see them going down the left column of that handout. If there's a single idea that is most central to the very notion of the modern, it lies in the priority of the new over the old. In the 16th and 17th centuries, a quarrel developed between the ancients and the moderns. While it may seem strange to our modern ears, the question was whether we moderns, in this case, people living in the 16th and 17th centuries, could improve on the wisdom of the ancients. In many spheres of learning, the ancients had set the standard and stood as the authorities. But in the early modern period, this was being challenged. The challenges came most obviously in the sciences, but the idea that the new could improve on the old and supplant it spread into other areas as well and cultivated a growing belief in progress. The quarrel between the moderns and ancients fed in turn into a larger sense of questioning that led historians to see the 17th century as a century of crisis. Christendom had split in two, new nation states were emerging, astronomers were seeing the heavens as never before, on earth the human body was revealing its secrets, Europeans were gaining a new view of their planet both with regard to its movement and its size. They were also gaining a new picture of themselves on that planet. Even the calendar was being reconfigured. There was then a real question about truth and how to know it. I would identify this quest for truth then as a second important characteristic of the modern. Furthermore, I would describe this quest as a quest for truth with a capital T. It was a search for the sort of truth that is certain, objective, and necessary. The kind of truth you need to know in order to succeed at being human. It was a search for the telos, the essence, the meaning of human existence. A search to discover what we are meant to be as human. It was a search for a humanism rooted in a shared human nature. The answer as to how to find the truth was, in short, to think carefully. And I would identify this faith in reason as a third characteristic of the modern. The hope was that if we would only think carefully, we could succeed in the quest for truth. We could succeed by way of reason alone. As Descartes would put it, in the reading we'll read in a couple of weeks, 
as long as one reasons carefully, quote, there cannot be anything so remote that it cannot eventually be reached, nor anything so hidden that it cannot be uncovered, close quote. Reason, it was thought, reason alone could establish its own foundations, rise above subjectivity and prejudice, and build an edifice of knowledge in which we could safely dwell. In keeping with this emphasis on reason, I would add an emphasis on the centrality of the individual as a fourth element of modernity. Enlightenment thinkers encouraged the individual to think for himself. As Kant put it in his famous essay, What is Enlightenment? Quote, enlightenment is man's release from his self-incurred tutelage. Tutelage is man's inability to make use of his understanding without direction from another. Have courage to use your own reason. That is the motto of the Enlightenment." Close quote. Individualism has always been central to the modern project, and at least in the early decades of modernity, it took the form of a rationalist individualism. I would suggest then, if you want a simple rubric for starting to think about your modern context, you might want to think of these four elements, the priority of the new, the quest for truth, the authority of reason, and the centrality of the individual. More can and should be said, of course, but I will maintain that this simple rubric can help us think about how the modern story has played out. It can help us reflect on ways that we remain modern today, and we can then determine whether we want our modern inheritance to frame it in the ways that it does. Consider then how this story has played out. While the notion of progress, or the new having priority over the old, has certainly come under question in recent decades, I am also struck by the fact that the belief in progress has a remarkable ability to endure. What do you think? Are we better today than we were a century ago? Do you expect tomorrow to be better than today? In answering that question, what metric will we use? Shall we think in terms of justice, wealth, health, happiness, technology? If there is a single arena in which the notion of progress most clearly endures, it probably is in our technologies where the priority of the new over the old is embedded in the very logic of the stuff. As we all know, all those updates on our digital devices are because someone somewhere is improving them. <coughs> The priority of the new, I think, endures in other ways as well, in the emphasis on speed and efficiency, on the assumption that fast is good, in filling our buckets with experiences, on the assumption that more is better, on our love of novelty and inventiveness for the sake of novelty and inventiveness, and on constant change as a way of life. But I'll leave those matters for you to ponder on your own and move on to the quest for truth. As numerous scholars have noted, well before the close of the last century, the modern quest for truth by way of reason alone did not work out as it was supposed to. What John Dewey referred to critically as the quest for certainty 
ended not in the certainty at which it aimed, but in the doubt in which it had begun. What was supposed to have been reason's ability to achieve certainty turned out to be, quote, the ability to question everything and the capacity to affirm nothing. What was supposed to have been reason's ability to achieve objectivity led to the discovery that, quote, the trail of the human serpent lies over everything. And the quest for necessary truth led to the conclusion that, quote, the absence of ground is our inescapable cultural condition. In other words, what was supposed to have been reason's ability to discover truths that are necessary or essential to being human turned out to be the ability always to negate necessity and to spin out possibilities for thinking and living differently. The hope, the modern hope, that we could discover a human telos or purpose that we could discover the inherent meaning of life, some way that we are meant to be that would enable us to succeed at being human gave way to the idea that there is no way we are meant to be. At the logical end of modernity, there are no necessary or essential truths. There are only possibilities for how we might imagine and reimagine ourselves not just as cultures or communities, but as individuals for whom life is an endless exercise in self-fashioning. One important outcome of the failure of the quest for certainty to discover the kind of truth it sought was that reason yielded its place of primacy to what we call reason's other, to feeling, passion, desire, inclination, preference, custom, habit, imagination, will. As the quest played out, reason's critique became a totalizing critique of reason and undermined reason's authority. When reason had important work to do, trying to discover the meaning or purpose of life, then reason remained supreme. But when reason failed to deliver and we became comfortable with the thought that there is no essence, no way we are meant to be, reason yielded its place to reason's other. Why do the hard work of thinking if ungrounded moral preferences and following our hearts will get us where we want to go? You may object, however, that by pointing out that reason does remain ubiquitous, and you are right. Yes, reason does remain ubiquitous, but it now functions largely in service to reason's other. Reason now is largely instrumental reason, and it is in service to our desires and our will. We want certain things from wealth and health to education and entertainment, so we put reason to work in order to get what we want. We create highly rationalized stock markets. We put applied science to work on biotech. We develop highly bureaucratized educational systems and we stay up to date on the most efficient ways to stream our entertainment. In each case, however, reason serves our desires and our will to power. In keeping with the ascendancy of reason's other, modern individualism has also changed character. 
The modern story remains as individualistic as ever, but the rationalist individualism in which the modern quest began has yielded to an emotivist or voluntarist individualism and finally morphed into the expressivist individualism that characterizes our society today. From reason to emotion to will to expression, the individual remains supreme, but it is her heart her desire, her will, and finally, her self-expression that matters most. One good way, I think, to capture the significance of the modern story is to tell it in terms of the demise or death of God. In short, <coughs> excuse me, as the logic of the quest for certain and necessary truth played out, God became one of the most notable casualties the most notable absence in the absence into which the modern story leads. The logic is fairly simple, actually. Once certainty and necessity are established as the standards, not much survives. There just isn't much that can't be doubted, including any version of God. God, as it turns out, just ain't necessarily so. And once science gave people a plausible account of the emergence and development of life on this planet, there really was no need for God. He was not necessary. God may exist, and let the record show, I think he does. God may exist, and there may be good reasons for believing he does. But once the modern quest for truth established certainty and necessity as the standards, God was not going to fare well. His demise, I believe, was written into the premises of the quest. The general outlines, as I show them again on the handout, of God's fate are clear enough. The revealed theism of the 16th century gives way to the philosophical theism of the 17th, then to the deism of the Enlightenment. Finally, we get late Enlightenment atheism and then the more mature atheisms of the 19th century and beyond including more aggressive anti-theisms of more recent decades. While numerous thoughtful people from Thomas Hardy and T.S. Eliot to Milan Kundera and Leszek Kolakowski have seen the disappearance of God as a mark of the modern, probably no one has captured this story more clearly than Nietzsche and his heirs did when they told the story in terms not only of the death of God, but also the twilight of the idols. Nietzsche and his heirs understood that the death of God implies not only the death of God, but also the death of all the surrogates or idols that we have ever wanted to put in God's place. Nietzsche recognized that the story of modern reason leads into a clearing that has been emptied of meaning-giving meta-narratives, of capitalized words, of God, gods, and idols, and Nietzsche put his philosophical hammer to work in clearing away every surrogate that people ever wanted to put in God's place. Following Nietzsche, Michel Foucault in the last century observed, quote, in our day, it is not so much the absence or the death of God that is affirmed as the end of man. Is it not the last man, Foucault asks, who announces that he has killed God thus situating his language, his thought, his laughter, in the space of that already dead God? 
Since he has killed God, it is he himself who must answer for his own finitude. But since it is in the death of God that he speaks, thinks, and exists, his murder itself is doomed to die. Man will disappear. Close quote. Foucault recognized that in disposing of God, man removed the source of his own significance as man and robs himself of the meaning of the act of killing God. Again, Foucault writes, quote, Nietzsche rediscovered the point at which man and God belong to one another, at which the death of the second is synonymous with the disappearance of the first. Foucault then concludes, it is no longer possible to think in our day other than in the void left by man's disappearance. One can say the same about every surrogate we have ever wanted to put in God's place, including nature, reason, culture, woman, the body, the self or subject, and so on. At the end of modernity, with God and his surrogates cleared away, with no creator to give meaning to the creation or grand storyteller to give meaning to the story, the notion of a meaning-giving meta-narrative becomes impossible. As Jean-Francois Léotard observed, our age is an age of incredulity toward meta-narratives. It doesn't matter whether you are appealing to Kant, Hegel, or Marx, to Moses, Mohammed, or Jesus, there is no meta-narrative that gives meaning to the story. There can be no way that we are meant to be. There are only ways we happen to have become and ways we will manage to become tomorrow. As Richard Rorty put it, there is nothing deep down inside us that we didn't put there ourselves. And again, citing Nietzsche, who writes, quote, no one gives a human being his qualities. No one is accountable for existing at all. He is not the result of a special design, a will, a purpose. He's not the subject of an attempt to attain to an ideal of man or an ideal of happiness or an ideal of morality. It is absurd, Nietzsche says, to want to hand over his nature to some purpose or other. We invented the concept purpose. In reality, purpose is lacking. Close quote. Notions such as purpose and meaning as we have come to understand them at the end of, the mo of modernity then are human inventions, not realities that are rooted in some meaning-giving reality, not in God or in nature, not in humanity or in society, not in happiness or in some notion of the good, not in religion, philosophy, or science. Our modern story then has led into a highly subjectivized, de-divinized absence, a limitless space from which the gods and the idols have been removed, leaving the expressivist individual both free and condemned to fashion a self of her own making. Content to follow her ungrounded moral preferences, the expressivist individual fills an otherwise empty space with an image of herself in accordance with her own imagination and desire and will. While the prospect of being the sovereign maker of one's life may be enticing in its limitlessness and possibilities, the individual attains this quasi-divine status just as the autonomous self disappears with God into the void. 
The modern quest for truth opened into an absence that is intoxicating in its limitlessness, but troubled by a weightlessness, by a burden of lightness that is neither easy to bear nor easy to cast off. I believe this is at the heart of the modern quest for truth. This is the logic of that quest. And whatever you make of it, however you feel about it or think of it, I would suggest to you that this remains at the heart of the modern story and it troubles us today still. I fear that this outcome to the modern quest for certainty continues to frame our lives and to weigh heavily on us at many points. I'd like to suggest just three areas in which I see this happening. First, I see this outcome to the modern quest weighing heavily on our spiritual and religious ways of thinking. Despite the urging of Nietzsche and his heirs to resist the temptation to erect idols in the place of God, most of it turns out are not good at being atheists. And so we fill the de-divinized space in which we find ourselves with God surrogates and we take leaps of faith in their direction. Some of our gods retain a religious aura, some take a more secular form, but we seem unable to live without them. While we may have accepted the death of the God that died at the hands of modern reason, we have not done so well at letting go of the surrogates. Were Nietzsche around today, he would be disappointed. What he described as a twilight of the idols over a century ago has turned out not to be a twilight, but a dawning. And in the morning light, it's become clear that we are filling our atheist universe with gods and taking leaps of faith in their direction. While I'm encouraged by this enduring inclination to acknowledge the divine, I am concerned about the ways that our cultural story shapes our thinking about the gods we worship. The truth about them is understood to be small t truth, personal and subjective. And so our gods are quite compatible with each other and with the atheism that frames them. They are the gods of what Rorty called romantic polytheism and David Brooks calls flexodoxy. They are wonderfully, wonderfully malleable and subject to our expressive will. This explains why I can have my truth and you can have your truth and our gods will mean whatever they mean to each of us. We may even use the vocabularies of traditional religions, but my God will not be allowed to make any demands on you, nor will your God make any demands on me. Our gods will comfort us and enable us to cope with the de-divinized absence in which we find ourselves, but they will exist only because we have given them their place. While the atheists of Atheism 1.0 thought they had to take a hard anti-theist line, the atheists of 2.0, as Alain de Batan calls himself and others, are quite sanguine about letting us religious people believe whatever helps us make our way in life. After all, as Noah Yuval Harari sees it, these gods exist only in and through our believing in them. They are helpful illusions, and therefore, Harari and many others are quite comfortable with their existence. While atheism is hardly the majority position today, then, I would argue that our culture is at heart an atheist culture, and that even our religious practices and beliefs are all too often framed by this absence. A second point at which I see the burden of lightness at the end of modernity weighing on us heavily is with regard to our view of nature. 
With no creator to give nature to us, nature ceases to be a gift and ceases in turn to have a voice. With no meta-narrative to instill meaning, the natural order is simply available to us. The earth becomes what Martin Heidegger called standing reserve, available to us to spend and use as we choose. Alternatively, in the absence of a god, we deify the earth and make it an object of worship. I fear that the natural human body is caught in a similar place as the earth. At the end of modernity, the body too ceases to be a gift of God and becomes in effect standing reserve, a site for the exploration of possibilities, or again, in the absence of a God, we deify the body and worship it. I am hesitant to try to talk about the body at all. In doing so, we are talking about deeply personal and strongly felt realities that I respect deeply. It is very important to me always to enter very humbly and sympathetically into any conversations about how best to understand and respond to the body. It matters to me that we see such conversations as part of a shared effort to address shared human concerns and questions, and that we do so on the understanding that we are for each other, not against each other. It is terribly sad that attempts to talk about gender or sexuality these days to easily denigrate into skirmishes in the culture war rather than attempts at genuine understanding. It is because these matters are so important and personal to us, though, that I want to express my concern about the ways that our modern story tends to frame our discussion about gender and sexuality, about race and ethnicity, about food and drink, about sport and work, about the limits of our embodiedness, and about the impact of our technologies on our bodies. There are honest, compassionate, important conversations to have about gender and sexuality and other issues of the body. But I do share Jean Bethke Elstein's concern about what happens to these conversations and to the body when we, quote, give everything over to the expressivist pole in advance, closed quote. A third point at which I see the impact of the modern quest for truth lies in the loss of the self or subject. We talk a lot about the subject-centered character of late modern culture, and I think we're right to do that. Yet, sadly and somewhat ironically, the self or subject appears in the modern story as yet another surrogate that dies in the death of God. As a result, the self now appears at the end of modernity as an absence, a ghost self, an empty space in the web of words, and many thoughtful people have struggled with this reality. Walker Percy, for instance, spends 250 pages lost in the cosmos, exploring, quote, the strange case of the self, yourself, the ghost which haunts the cosmos. Percy laments the way that an overreaching scientism, which extrapolates from the objectivity of the scientific method to an all-construing objectivism, objectifies the self 
and thereby loses sight of the very self it seeks to know. The self becomes unable to know itself as anything other than an object to be studied scientifically, and thus the self becomes unable to know itself as a self. If you've never read Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos, put it at the top of your reading list for whenever you can get to it. Rorty described the self or subject as being no more than, quote, drawing a line around a vacant place in the middle of the web of words and then claiming that there is something there rather than nothing, close quote. Foucault wrote similarly, quote, I have tried to define this blank space from which I speak. I am no doubt not the only one who writes in order to have no face. Do not ask who I am and do not ask me to remain the same." Close quote. Again, Stanley Fish notes that while the self emerges in our modern context as the autonomous maker, quote, the I or subject, rather than being the freestanding origination and master of its own thoughts and perceptions, is a space traversed and constituted, given a transitory ever-shifting shape by a variety of forces that precede and dominate it. Terry Eagleton also speaks of the modern self as, quote, known only as an eloquent silence, an elusive specter which is gone as soon as we give it a name. In other words, even as we try to celebrate our autonomy, we experience a self-doubt an interesting term. We experience a self-doubt that is real. We may try to ignore this uneasiness by staying busy and internet connected, but we feel the impact. There is a lot of restless striving in our world. While the idea of a culture of possibilities in which nothing is necessary and everything is possible may be enticing, I fear that the undermining of the self is doing far more damage than can be measured. Seeing the self as one more surrogate in the succession of surrogates that died in the death of God is no mere turn of words. People feel it. 20-year-olds feel it. It is not just because of COVID-related stress that the UF Counseling Center is overwhelmed with students seeking counsel. The good news in the midst of all this is that while a late modern burden of lightness weighs on us all, day-to-day -day experience, life itself, <laughs> continues to reveal a moral weightiness and presence that contradicts the absence into which our modern story is led. There is a weightiness in life that counters the modern lightness of being. There is a moral presence in life that contradicts the absence. We know that love is better than hate. Our zeal for justice is as strong as ever. And we encounter meaning deep down inside that we did not put there ourselves. At point after point, something deep within pushes back against the logic of the culture. So while the modern story moves us toward a non-theistic end, 
as our enduring interests in spirituality and religion demonstrate, we still long for God and hunger for something deep. As Rorty observed, even, quote, postmodern liberals still hanker for a way to see justice and love come together deep down in the nature of reality. Similarly, despite our tendencies either to diminish or deify nature, nature remains a gift and it keeps speaking to us. People like Wendell Berry hear the voice and call us to open our ears. Berry eloquently reminds us that the good farmer does not go to the land and impose his will on it. The good farmer approaches the land humbly and asks the land what it requires of him. The good farmer knows to listen and to comply. As with the earth, I believe, the body continues to speak as well and to push back against the cultural logic of modernity, revealing deep meanings that we did not put there ourselves. Meanings that run very deep indeed, suggesting that there are ways we are meant to be. And if there's any way for us to know these ways, it would be wonderful if we could. Finally, as Percy argues, the predicament of the self as a ghost self is so preposterous that one has to wonder if we went terribly wrong somewhere. The preposterous state of the self at the end of modernity pushes us to reconsider whether the whole modern quest was ill-conceived and to wonder if maybe the supposedly preposterous understanding of human experience offered by the Judeo-Christian scriptures is the only adequate way to make sense of the truly preposterous state of the self at the end of modernity. It has been over a decade since David Foster Wallace gave his famous commencement address that went viral, largely for the simple story with which it began. There are these two young fish swimming along, he said, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over to the other and goes, what the hell is water? <laughs> Close quote. It's a great story. You can all really laugh if you want. It's very funny. I'm lousy at delivering these things, but it's a great story. At any rate, this story captures beautifully why I keep wanting to keep asking what frames what. There are ideas at work that frame us at such a deep level that we just don't even recognize them. They are the water in which we swim. I believe the outcome of the modern story continues to serve as this kind of framework. It is the sea in which we all swim, and its currents lead us in ways we have a hard time seeing. I also think there is something within us that resists the current. There are not just cross currents. There is something deep inside us that wants to swim against the current, that wants to swim upstream. The pull of the cultural logic is strong, but something within pushes back against the cultural logic. I encourage us all to reflect not just on the currents in the seas in which we swim, but on whatever it is within us that pushes back against that current to see how we might best understand ourselves as individuals and as human. 
finally, and this is finally, there is a second question that I often ask students. The first one is what frames what? The second one is with whom are you in conversation? I am increasingly concerned about the fact that most people seem to read only those books and listen only to those voices with whom they know they already agree. I think this is a serious problem these days. Rarely do we challenge ourselves to listen seriously to the ideas of the people with whom we have our most serious differences. For me, this has meant, among other things, reading atheist and anti-theist thinkers who see the nature of being and the human condition very differently from me. My Christian theology teaches me to expect to learn much from these thinkers, and that is exactly what's happened, both in books and in person. My atheist friends have taught me a lot. They have provoked thought in all the best ways, and I trust that the authors we will read this semester in our Friday reading group will do the same for you. They are thinkers who have both understood and shaped the modern story in important ways. They have captured their time and ours in thought, and I invite you to join me in conversation with them in our reading group this fall. And with that, I'll stop. And we do have at least a few minutes. We're running just a touch late, but I'd be glad to just have some discussion for a while if you'd like. Um, so uh, thoughts, questions, comments are welcome. Where would you like to go? And uh, if you have any questions about anything here, I trust that sort of matched up um, with what I just said. Yeah, go on. When you talk about the things that uh, are within us that are pushing to swim against the current, could you give um, examples of like, do you have certain things in mind when you say that of like how, I mean, I'm, I, you're kind of hinting that it might be different for everyone, but are there like certain themes that run through people mm -hmm. that push them against the current? Um, yeah, good question. Uh, let me think. I, I think um, if, if I'm right in my understanding of where this culture brings us out, um, then to a large extent, moral discourse goes over to reasons other. It goes over to how we feel largely to what would be called ungrounded moral preferences. Um, and that that should be enough. I, I, I don't think it is enough. I, I don't think it's enough even to give people real motivation to care about justice, to care about love, to care about beauty, to care about whether something can be identified as truly good. And yet, I think we live in a culture that is filled with moral zeal. Um, there is something in us that we just find we, we do care. Um, now, we may end up with some very different ideas as to what justice is going to look like or as to whether beauty is a real thing or, or whatever, but, and, and this is part of why I question whether moral feeling is enough, but, but it is striking that there is a depth of feeling, there is a sense that things matter, even though I would argue our cultural inheritance doesn't give us adequate 
rationale for why it should matter the way it does. And, and this is where I will say, I, those of you who have known me for a while, you know, I just keep quoting Nietzsche, and you can feel free to criticize me on that. But I, I, I do it because he is so clear on capturing this problem. We invented the concept purpose. There, there is not that, that. That is the logic of the culture. And yet, we've, we feel strongly, feel keenly, the causes that we, that we invest in. Um, and, 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 and in which we, we invest our will to power. I, I think the will to power and the leap of faith are two ways of saying something very similar. And our culture is full of that kind of thing right now. Um, even though it's curiously groundless, it is a very powerful um, reality, I think. I'm not sure that's a very good answer to your question, but... Uh, well, I, I guess what I'm hearing in the answer is that it seems that there are key themes like beauty, um, justice, love, these things that are mm -hmm. almost like little seeds that our, our culture and our experiences kind of grow in a s certain way, but the seed is there that like moves us in mm -hmm. like we're always going to be moving in a direction of those like key things that make us human is that kind of what you're saying uh yeah i'm not sure i i think um <laughs> let me let me say this and i'm not sure whether it will really address the question but sort of still just thinking in sort of larger terms um I think one of the ironies, and I, I am convinced we, we bear the image of God as human beings, that the image of God is present, and the image of God will always find expression. Um, ironically, it is because we have the image of God in us that we can then um, sort of deny God and, and act as if it's not important. Um, we can, we can disbelieve in God. We can become convinced he doesn't even exist. We can reject him entirely. Um, and the only reason we can then still get on with our lives and have anything like a coherent, meaningful life, even for, from our own standpoint, is that, in fact, it is the image of that God you reject in you that is, that is making your life something. And, and so I would argue that two things are always present. One is the image of God is present in each and every one of us. You do not meet a human being in whom the image of God does not find expression. And that expression is also broken. And that also will be revealed as well. Those two things are there all the time in all of us. And it doesn't matter whether you call yourself a Christian or not, I, I would argue that those two realities are constantly present. And, and so it is that, that side of the image of God that generates moral feeling, moral intuitions, that sense of what is right, that I think is there in each of us and constantly at work. And then when, and then when we go to work with that, we break out into our groups on social media and say awful things about each other and to each other. And so then the brokenness enters in as well. But, but don't overlook what is fundamentally good and 
God originated in there. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, we can talk some more. But uh, um, other other thoughts? Yeah, sorry, I'm not sure. Yeah. Other questions? Let me. I'll, I'll just share one story, and then we'll we'll finish. Um, but I, I would love to have conversation, please. As things linger, uh, know that I would love to have the conversations, particularly sort of individually or several of you as friends come and talk. I'd love to do that. Um, I mentioned Richard Rorty's name in here several times. Some of you have known me long enough to know who he is and, and why I talk about him. But um, I, I did my degree, my PhD at, at University of Virginia. Richard Rorty was my uh, one of my two advisors on my PhD. Um, and and I quote him because he was my advisor, but I also quote him because he was a really big deal at the time. I, I can't take any credit for being at the right place at the right time. Rorty, to me, was as consistent a voice articulating the outcome of modern culture as any voice I've known. Um, and it was my privilege and blessing to work with him. It was wonderful to be able to work with him. Um, thoroughgoing atheist, and, and to me, he was sort of Nietzsche's posthumous man who could take Nietzsche and democratize him and pragmatize him and make him accessible and, and make him a happy thing for all of us normal folks. Um, but, it, but it's very, he, the, the consistency, the honesty, the insight of Rorty is remarkable. And I hope you can come read certainly that Trotsky and the Wild Orchids with me in a, in a few weeks. Um, but. When, when Rorty and I, we worked together, we did work on French thinkers and their parallels to the American pragmatists, and so he was very interested in it. He's a neo-pragmatist, and, um, and I was delighted to be able to do that work with him. And then finally, we got to the point where he and I talked, and he knew I was some kind of Christian, but he didn't know I was the kind of Christian that actually took it seriously. Um, so, so when we sat and we talked, one of the first questions out of his mouth was how do you read the Bible? And, and, and what he wanted to know was whether I read the Bible the same way he would read Woodhouse and his favorite poet. If I was willing to read the Bible that way, it would be fine. Because it would just be a resource for self-fashioning. And, and if I was willing to just kind of accept the idea that, like all of us, we're all fashioning a life, all fashioning life. If you want to use the Bible or the Quran or whatever you might want to use, it's fine as long as you just take it on those terms. And you understand that there is no meaning that you've got to discover. There is no essence about being human that you've got to find. There are only truths that you will create about yourself and ways you can imagine yourself being. So when he asked me the question, I said, well, I read the Bible because I think it should impact all, all of how I live and shape me as a human being, something like that. He did one of his shrugs of his shoulders and said, mm, too bad. And, 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 that's, and, and I will say, that was 40 years ago now. Um, and, and what became very clear to me, and this was again, you want to read this, read it in Nietzsche. We'll read it in Nietzsche too. Yeah, this is a good reading group, folks. Come again. Um, what, what's going on there is if there is no meaning that needs to be discovered, then the truly immoral person is the person who thinks there is a meaning that needs to be discovered. Does that make sense? 
So with Rorty, as long as I was willing to just read texts in the same way he would and the, and the same way he would say all of us do, which is they're just sort of resources for creating a fashioning a self, self-determination, it's all fine because that's all there is. And it's not like in doing that you've found meaning. It's, no, it's just there isn't such a thing as meaning that you need to find. So just, just let it be that. There's no meaning you need to discover. And I realized that in that moment, 35 or 40 years ago, that, that I am then the journeyman moralist that Nietzsche condemns because I do think there are ways that we are meant to be as human beings. Um, that's, that's well worth thinking about. Don't, don't presume, if you're here as a Christian, that you know what that means. Um, but but it's, it's that, that issue right now, it seems to me, is such a, such a critical one. And part of what I want to do in conversations with people, particularly where the topics are hard and personal and, and, we, and we want to be sensitive and supportive to each other, is I want to, I want to try to get the conversation down to that level of how do we think about the nature of being how do we think about the nature of human being? How do we think about the nature of meaning? Human beings do create meanings. That, that's something we do. Is that all that's ever done with regard to meaning? How shall we understand meaning? And in, and in trying to get at that, we can talk about various aspects of our experience. But, but I'd love to move the conversations to those deeper places because I think it's in those deeper places where we might have more success even just in communicating with each other and finding worthwhile conversations that, that we feel like maybe we're, we're understanding and growing and getting somewhere. Um, but that, that, that issue is just such a central one and uh, I will stop there. But again, I'd love to have further conversations, so please um, shoot me a note and we will talk. And that's it, we will stop. Oh, to Chris, I mean, the, the back of this handout, uh, let me just point you to that. Um, this is not the first time that the what frames what questions come up. Uh, the first are four essays that would be relevant that I've written. Um, and then the newsletter that Mike and I have both contributed to. The first two, Expanding Our Horizons Beyond the Digital Frame and Restoring a Countercultural Humanist Frame, um, are, are ones by me. Um, and they were specifically dealing with questions of race. Um, and that cult countercultural humanist frame is one that I would really encourage you to have a look at if you can. Um, the first one references a number of newsletters that Mike has done. And then there's also the one where Mike himself um, talks about what frames what. Um, Mike is actually one of those students who probably used heard me say, ask the question 20 years ago. Um, and then another one that's just kind of really very different is the one in conversation with Dante, which was just kind of fun um, and did that a year or two ago. Those are all on the website, and then the schedule for the reading group is down at the bottom of the page, too. Uh, so you've got that. Good.